Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 168, Integral Zen. We're joined this week by Zen master Diane Musho Hamilton to explore what it means to practice Zen or any authentic spiritual path in the midst of a modern and postmodern cultural context. This is part one of a two-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vince Horn, and I'm joined today by a very special guest, Diane Hamilton. Thank you, Diane, for taking the time to speak with us today. We've actually spoken once before, so this is, you're becoming like a regular guest on Buddhist Geeks. It's great. <laughs> Fantastic. So I know a lot of people probably that have been listening for a while actually heard our original interviews, so mm-hmm. they know a little bit about you, but I wanted to mention a few things just to sort of create a context for the discussion that we're going to have. So I'll mention a few of your accolades, your spiritual <laughs> accolades. Okay. They're very few, but feel free. <laughs> cool. So I guess the main thing is that you're a Zen teacher in the lineage of Genpo Roshi, who's part of the White Plum Sangha mm-hmm. that was founded originally by Maizumi Roshi, yes. one of the key Japanese Zen teachers to yeah. bring Zen to the West. Mm-hmm. And then recently you've started, you and your husband, Michael Magaku, who's also a teacher in that lineage, mm-hmm. founded a Zendo out in the middle of Southern Utah in this beautiful area. Mm-hmm. And it's called the Boulder Mountain Zendo. Yeah. And you guys have been leading retreats out there, like weekend retreats and yeah. week-long sashins. And mm-hmm. I actually was really fortunate and able to come sit a retreat with you recently, yeah. uh, my wife and I, and it was a really beautiful place. Mm-hmm. It's majestic and yeah. awesome beautiful. Yeah. And part of what you're doing is teaching local retreats there. Mm -hmm. And then you're also doing a lot of teaching through this um, organization called I Evolve. Mm -hmm. And it's a translineage practice community. Mm -hmm. Maybe you could say a little bit about what a translineage practice community is. Well, it really arose out of the work and the teaching that I had done for the Integral Institute and with Ken Wilbur and that Ken had a vision and does have a vision that in our time, it's the first time in, throughout the course of history that all the texts and the practices and the study and the rituals associated to all different wisdom traditions around the world are available. And so there's this question as we move into more of a global consciousness, what is the role of a spirituality that actually moves in some way beyond the lineages, if you will, although lineage is a very powerful thing. And there's very, very deep possibility through lineage practice. What happens when those lineages actually begin to interact with each other? What are the particular gifts and understandings of each tradition? And what happens when those, not simply in a kind of ecumenical dialogue, but in an actual practice setting? So Sally Kempton, who was a student of Swami Muktananda's and a very developed yogi, teaches with I Evolve and Dr. Mark Goffney, who's the co-founder and who's of course, Jewish and uh, very well versed in Kabbalah, and Sophia Diaz is another. And we, we like to invite teachers from the integral scene into that just really open space, if you will, of practice and just see what the interaction brings. And the students and the people who are involved in the integral world seem to be drawn to practice there because the integral framework is also available. There's a kind of conceptual framework that 
can hold the practice in a way, if you will. Nice, nice. And, yeah. and we'll get into this. You teach an approach called integral Zen, which mm-hmm. is sort of a, a mix of the integral theory and also your sort of unique approach. Mm-hmm. We'll get into that. But um, I thought it might be fun to first start with this question. While we were on retreat with you, you mentioned one evening the difference between a spiritual approach that focuses on renunciation, mm-hmm. um, which is the spiritual approach I've been most familiar mm-hmm. with right. in the Theravada tradition, mm-hmm. and then a spiritual approach that focuses on transmutation. Mm-hmm. It was really cool to hear that distinction. And I've sort of heard something similar mm-hmm. in the, the Vajrayana teachings, yes. but there's some way in which you described it that mm-hmm. really hit home for me. Okay. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that distinction yeah, well, and I'll do it from a from a very humble perspective as I like to refer to myself as a working stiff in the dharma, you know. I don't pretend to be, you know, a great realizer or necessarily while I'm a lineage holder, I don't proclaim to be a a master of traditions. Just rather that I've been a very serious student of Buddha dharma for many, many years, almost 30 years now and it's been my main spiritual practice and obviously I'm an American and I'm functioning in this context. And so there's a lot around what Buddhism in America is. So I'm not speaking so much as an expert on tradition as I am from my own experience. So renunciation, transmutation, in a way you might say that the fundamental challenge in our life has to do with how we relate with the dualistic nature of our mind and of reality. So from a dualistic perspective, we have things that are good and things that are bad and things that are right and things that are wrong and situations that are preferable and situations which aren't and situations which are just from a social perspective and unjust. And so we're constantly working with this dualism and with trying to support that which is good, if you will, for human beings, while in some ways minimizing that which is bad for human beings. And when it comes to our own understanding and our own way of working with our spiritual nature, the most basic approach is that of renunciation. You know, the Ten Commandments tell us what to do and what not to do, basically. So we do this and we don't do that, and we renounce the part of our experience which is just simply unwholesome, which doesn't work for us. So, for instance, we might practice being generous as opposed to being stingy, or we might practice being humble as opposed to being prideful. But as we move deeper and deeper into practice, we start to see that those dualisms sometimes don't hold quite in the way we thought they did. So we might find, we start to discover that that actually there's a moment where instead of being generous, holding back actually is the more skillful thing to do. Not to give in a particular moment might be a more skillful act. Or it might actually be that in, in one moment where humility makes a lot of sense, in the next moment, confidence and even a certain kind of brazenness might be needed. So suddenly that set of injunctions, which were simple and defined, start to break down. And then we start to see that there's actually a continuum or there's a, you might say, an energetic polarity that we start to work with. And so the issue becomes, how do we occupy that polarity? Let's say, instead of calling it generosity and stinginess, let's call it generosity and containment. Take the negative connotation out, talk about containment, and what's the play of those two opposites? In terms of actual transmutation of energy, let's just take a Jungian perspective. One of the things about a postmodern Buddhist practice is that we look into the whole issue of shadow and that comes out of Jungian psychology that the deep aspects in the unconscious 
that we have a very hard time actually bringing to consciousness all the things we don't like about ourselves, don't want, don't want to identify with. And yet we find that when we don't relate with them directly, that somehow they seep out. And we start finding shadow qualities either being projected on others or coming out in our behavior in ways that we're not aware of. So what happens when we make the shadow conscious and we actually bring that, you might even say it's kind of a scary way of saying it, but what happens when we actually engage or bring that dark energy to light and actually work with it, hold it in our first person, claim it as part of us, does that in some way free the world of our projections or our unconscious, the ways in which it all comes out unconsciously. So you might say that in the process of transmutation that you create a container of self that actually will hold all of that that's either marginalized or unwanted or disavowed or however you want to say it and actually work with the energy of that in order to clarify and liberate, you know, your heart mind. And that's a kind of abstract way of saying it. Maybe I need to be more concrete, but... No, no, that's the idea. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. And as you're describing the difference, I'm sort of imagining since Jung and all the Freudian analysts and Mm -hmm. all the people that have contributed to Western psychotherapy pointed out this sort of shadow thing, Mm -hmm. which I guess in Asia wasn't really, they hadn't known about that or it wasn't talked about so explicitly or something. Well, the brilliance of Zen is that in a certain way, like the most rigorous Zen is just completely not interested in talking about anything, Mm -hmm. which it just keeps in a certain way pulling the conceptual and linguistic rug out so that you're actually just present here now, which is the, you know, the crown jewel of our spiritual practice. So the extent to which shadows actually looked at or worked with in Zen is a little bit more unclear to me, but I know from what period of time I spent in the Tibetan tradition that there is a history there of working with shadow in a certain way, like we might call them figures that appear to be negative or frightful or scary and to identify with those and actually bring that quality up and transmute that energy. So I think the Tibetan tradition. So they have some of that there, like wrathful deities. Wrathful deities, yeah. And and, and even practices like Chud. There's a practice where you actually offer yourself to the demons, you know, in order to be as another approach to allowing the dissolution of ego, if you will. Interesting. And I'm just uh, imagining and actually looking back at my own experience and seeing with a more renunciative approach, maybe Mm -hmm. not the Tibetan tradition so much. Mm -hmm. I had a tendency to really, I think, repress certain aspects of myself in the name of trying to cultivate the good stuff. I I, I couldn't really see the differences Mm -hmm. like in what is pushing something away and what's Mm -hmm. like a genuine heartfelt desire to bring in the good. So I could see how that could be a real problem, like the renunciative path like could really serve as a as a way of repressing the shadow or not looking at it and losing the energy that's available that's associated to these more unconscious impulses that, that there's actually an energy there that when you claim it work with it that that energy is available and actually becomes liberated and there's a more kind of technical buddhist discussion which is that what's referred to as the hinayana or the the more narrow gate if you will is more the precepts and the instructions about how to renounce, but the Vajrayana and the Buddhayana in Zen is more about, you know, actually holding the duality and working with the duality as a continuum of of energy as opposed to a kind of a split of right and wrong. And the danger from my perspective of a a truly renunciate path is simply that you divide the world into good and bad and then try to live out a good 
existence, and that'll, that takes you so far. But then, as you say, you run into the limit of that. You start to see a lot of things that either get put away, not related with, or simply just aren't in your consciousness, although they might be in the consciousness of all your friends. That's one, I'm of, the, sure they were. one of the big dangers, you know. <laughs> so Yeah, and I like, too, that you were talking on the retreat, at least, about the renunciative path as sort of uh, using everything yeah. as the path. Mm-hmm. Like, everything's game for the spiritual path. There's yeah. nothing that is not spiritual in some Yeah, the, way. the transmutation path. Yeah, as the transmutation to. path, yeah. exactly, yeah. And then there's one other small thing that, that I think is also important, is that a strong renunciate path, that one of the shadows of that is actually a kind of spiritual piety or subtle spiritual pride. Because, as you pointed out, when you practice a kind of virtue, you start to experience yourself as virtuous. And then, as always the case, ego kind of steps in and appropriates that, and pretty soon you're just the paragon of virtue, and that's your identity, right? And there's nothing worse. I mean, in some ways, it's one of the worst possibilities. So the transmutation path keeps you really in touch with your humanness. Mm. And that that tendency towards piety, I think, gets cut through also. Interesting. And have you found that there's any shadow sides or weaknesses with a a transmutation path? Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of teachers who come to mind who've been criticized for bringing everything to the path, including alcoholism, womanizing, you know, not being straight with finances, all of it. In other words, it's harder, much harder to stay as clear from an ethical perspective when everything is included. It can start to feel as though whatever arises is perfect as it is, when in fact, you know, there are moments where something should just simply be said no to. And so I think that's the shadow. Either way, even when we talk about renunciation, either way you can start to see that no matter what the type of path we choose, we have to work with something about the underbelly of that path, which is by its nature a transmutation issue, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. Mm-hmm. It just sounds like there's always a weakness in yeah. how we approach things and yeah, we have precisely. to work with it somehow. Yeah, and it's the world. It literally is the nature of, of our mind and of reality to this play of the two, even though, of course, it's all one, it manifests as two, and we have to navigate that. Nice, and I, I know that the approach of Zen that you're teaching now, you're calling mm-hmm. it integral Zen, mm-hmm. is, its concern is with exactly that, what you're talking about, how to navigate all the complexities of the world and figure out a way to approach spirituality that's sort of taking into account these things. Well, I think that's what it's ripening toward. Mm. I would say that it, the original inspiration... Because why would you add the word integral to Zen? That doesn't make any sense from the Zen perspective. I mean, nothing can be added. Nothing can really be taken away. And particularly, why would you add a conceptual map to Zen? Because Zen is the most radically non-conceptual system. And it's really quite provocative and beautiful in that regard in how rigorous and relentless it is. And teaching Zen can be a great challenge just precisely because to use language to teach Zen, which is why the stories of the famous masters, they do all these kind of unorthodox behaviors like putting shoes on their heads and walking out of the room because the cutting away of conceptual barriers and thought that creates a a duality between us and reality as it is, that's its brilliance. So the idea of even adding the word integral to Zen is just from one point of view, sort of stupid. But <laughs> the way that... But it, you did it. <laughs> I did, yeah, because I'm just naturally dumb, you know. 
and I'm a terrible Zen teacher. <laughs> but the reason I did it really was because there was just a lot of energy within the integral community of, of spiritual seekers to practice Zen. So really, I remember saying to my teacher, Gempa Roshi, what's integral Zen? And he said, my life. Because all of our lives in this global time, in this very massively multicultural milieu that we live in, we're all integral. We're all borrowing from traditions and participating in different aspects of practice. We're all informed by science. We've all been affected by postmodern critique. We look at culture. Feminism matters to us. We care about the environment. We're all integral, really. So for me, the inspiration was really to practice Zen in a context or in a song, if you will, a community of people who were informed integrally. In a way, the inspiration really came from just wanting simply to give the people in the integral world a place to practice where they could relate to each other. And then what's coming out of that is just some of these deeper questions that integral brings to spiritual practice, like really what does modernism and science have to say about spiritual practice? I remember Ken at one point, Ken Wilbur, asking the question, if you found out, for instance, that three hours a day of Zazen was really the, the absolute uh, maximum to deepen realization and that any sitting after that each day was actually didn't ripen into anything. Even as I speak, that's not a very good way to frame it from a Zen point of view. But let's imagine that there was an efficacy to the number of hours. Would you practice five if you knew that three was, you know, the right amount? So he's, he's bringing this question, you know, what does science, research, what does that all have to do with spiritual practice? I mean, the research that's been done on prayer, that prayer actually does seem to have impact. Does that matter? And then also the postmodern considerations are brought to the, the question as well. So one of the things we talked about, which is a good postmodern question, is what's the difference between the role of the teacher and the role of an administrator of an organization? Lots of times within the Buddhist world, the head teacher and the head administrator are the same. They may be a rockingly good teacher and a very sad leader and maybe not actually that good at running an organization. Now, some of them are and are very talented at that, but not everybody is, and yet we don't often make those distinctions. So Integral would invite us to go ahead and make those distinctions and work with that and see what comes of that. So it's an experiment, but all of spiritual practice is an experiment in a way. Mm. And I noticed in your teachings, like there was much more of a sense of a a collective exploration mm -hmm. that I'd never really experienced on retreats before. Mm -hmm. And I, I found that to be interesting. And it seemed related to Dharma teaching because you were mm -hmm. obviously doing teaching. But then there was this sort of interpersonal, mm -hmm. I felt like shadow work going mm -hmm. on as well. Right. And right. at one point, I actually had this feeling of like, we're just sitting around talking about being human together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I know that a big part of that was probably mm -hmm. the way that you were framing mm -hmm. everything. Yeah. But it just felt like we were kind of helping wake each other up. Mm -hmm. And that seemed like a unique thing mm -hmm. in some way to me. And given what I've seen in the spiritual scene, could you say something about that? Yeah, I would say that I have a tremendous amount of respect for the lineage master and the role of the master in particularly in Zen practice, the relationship of the master and at the same time, in our time, I also have a tremendous amount of faith in the fellow practitioners. And conventionally, it's said that the sangha or the group of practitioners actually are like stones that rub up against each other and actually help to round each other out. I feel that the recognition of, of our true nature, it's our birthright. It's attendant to who we are. And having a really skillful person who can help you realize or see who you really are, 
But that actually can be in the form of somebody who's sitting next to you. It doesn't always have to be in the in a vertical transmission, although we need that. But the sangha matters as well. And maybe because I'm a woman, or maybe because I grew up in a large family, or maybe because I'm a Mormon, this again would be an integral question. What influence is it that I put as much emphasis as I do on the sangha? But my guess is if you were to I'm imagining there's just more of that emphasis across Buddha Dharma in America than certainly we might have experienced in the past just because of the time that we're in. And I I think spiritual practice is really about becoming a full human being as opposed to whatever we might think enlightenment means or whatever it means to be divinely inspired, but actually to integrate that into the, the absolute challenge of the flesh and boniness of our experience if you will. Mm, very cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of connected to the original question around mm-hmm. the sort of unique group yeah. teaching situation yeah. that we had where we were able to share from the big mind voices, like mm-hmm. we're actually able to take on certain voices and mm-hmm. speak from those wisdom voices or, mm-hmm. or even the more uh, dualistic voices. I also had this sort of interesting insight that somehow inviting that in mm-hmm created a container where you didn't always have to hold it down like that there was some checks and balances Mm -hmm. from the wisdom of the group and that that it sort of freed you up a little bit to like absolutely as a teacher yeah i found that really interesting has that been in your experience well my teacher gampo roshi who you might say had a spontaneous awakening in his early 20s and then realized he had to to bring that into the container and had, a, had an intuition about Zen and began to study with Maizumi Roshi in his late 20s and studied with him in Los Angeles for about 14 years. And then was with him altogether, I believe, more like 24 years, but was actually with him in Los Angeles. He was working with the Voices Dialogue founders, Sal and Sidra Stone in the 80s, and the whole Sangha was working on some, some issues using the Voice Dialogue process. In about 1999, my teacher started to use voice dialogue to ask the questions that Zen asks. You know, what is your original face before your parents were born or those kinds of questions and found that through facilitating and asking people to identify that he saw just so clearly the um, primordial wisdom, the self-existent wisdom of each person that when you identify in just the right way that this both expansiveness of consciousness but also just kind of very direct knowing about being human about what it is that that's available instead of the teacher imparting that or pointing that out the teacher is now eliciting that because it already is available your true nature if you will enlightened mind heart whatever word you'd like to use for something that's fundamentally unnameable buddha nature perhaps, that by inviting you in the right way to see it, which is no other than you, that you can actually just simply start to manifest and access that part. And I really think that that's when Genpo's genius, Genpo Roshi's genius, is to facilitate, well, there's a pointing out to the facilitation, but to elicit as opposed to impart. That's a big shift. It's yeah, really and I experienced shift. it as a pretty big shift. Yeah. So. I'd say yeah. that's something unique maybe to the, I don't know if it came out of the whole integral conversation or just from Gempo's experimentation, but it seemed really unique to me. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think it it certainly came through Gempo Roshi. And then I think that the, the the amount of it that we've done in the integral community has allowed us to actually 
start to look at some other questions of being from this perspective. And it's been really illuminating for everybody. So I'm glad you liked it. Yeah, thank you. And one last thing I wanted to ask about sort of the integral teaching Mm -hmm. model. I saw that this summer you're doing a a longer retreat, like Mm -hmm. a three-week retreat. Yeah. And it's interesting, you're breaking it up so that in the first week, it's more of a traditional Zen retreat where Mm -hmm. there's a lot of sitting and silence and a very Mm -hmm. strong container for that practice. Yes, right. And then the second week is more focused on relational practices Mm -hmm. and conflict mediation because you're trained as a conflict mediator correct yeah so it's more like interpersonal Mm -hmm. and then the last week you guys are going out into nature Mm -hmm. and camping and sitting in nature and being with Mm -hmm. the elements Mm -hmm. so it's really like an actual retreat structure that's based on this recognition of of these different perspectives in the integral lingo I was wondering if you could say a little bit about that and is this the first time you're doing it it's the first time I'm doing it and the inspiration of it really comes from the what we in the integral world and what Ken Wilbur and Mark Goffney had a lot to do with this are calling the three faces of spirit. And the first face of spirit is obviously the first person realization that I am and that I am no other than all things. You might say that this recognition is at the heart of Zen practice. So the first week is really to realize the first person and the bliss and luminousness that's associated to this first person recognition. And the second person is really the relational dimension and all the theistic traditions that focus on the I-thou, on myself and deity, and the communion of myself and the divine, those are second person emphases in which the relational dualism is really where the power of the practice is. And so the second week is going to be really focused on second person. And I think many of us who've been involved in Buddhist practice, and even those of us who've had deep enlightenment experiences still struggle in the relational dimension precisely because it's in the relational dimension that our ego gets most provoked and our sense of self-striving and need to protect ourselves so what what's it like to bring the recognition of zazen into the relational dimension and actually work with ego as it's activated in our communications and in our negotiation and are coming and going with one another because that really is the place where most of us struggle. So in a way you could say that the second face of God, the second person of spirit that we'll be focused on is also just a deep experiment in how can we bring from the week of the first person this realization into the relational realm and keeping in mind that of course all traditions have all three faces, that Zen has very powerful second person dimensions in the master-disciple relationship, and maybe if you have a relationship to a bodhisattva like Kanzian Bodhisattva, or to the Sangha itself. So it's always there, but I'm, what I'm doing is trying to make it explicit and see what the practices and what the technologies are that can really actually help us to liberate more freedom and more fullness in the second person in the relational dimension. Is there a way for us to to relax more deeply with each other and to not compete as, as much or compare ourselves as furiously as we do. And, you know, the same kind of samadhi that you can experience on the cushion to experience that on, in the day-to-day exchange, not simply sitting in a group, but actually working together, playing together. So that's the second phase. And then the third phase is really not the third phase, but we're starting there, which is the third phase of spirit is really that real specific subject-object split that science uses where spirit is now not a first-person recognition, it's not a second-person communion or exchange, but it's really the mystery of that which is other than you. 
there's really nature, and particularly southern Utah, so profoundly immense and unknowable in a way that the mystery of the third person can really be experienced in nature. And then, of course, we'll bring it closer to us in a relational dimension, and then we'll also get to experience how, of course, we're nothing other than nature. We are nature. Nature is us, as much as we like to imagine. We're separate, we're not, which is partly why I care about spending time in nature at this time in our history. But it's kind of a third face of spirit, going into nature and really seeing nature as other and then really seeing nature as the same. So it's that whole exploration, which is an integral way of talking about it and framing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember you sort of mentioning that it's really helpful to be able to go in and out of these different perspectives, not like one is superior right. to the others, but it's mm-hmm. somehow useful to, to yeah. flow. Yeah, and I like to point out to people just the difference in the emotional space of these three perspectives that first person is often associated to bliss, you know, the bliss of meditation, of non-duality. And the second person, of course, is love. And the third person is awe. Like just to experience yourself in relationship to the unknowableness of the universe. If you can get over the fear of it, it's, <laughs> it's very awe-inspiring. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.